Welcome to Evolve, reinventing leadership, building freedom cultures, with CEO and award-winning author, Yvette Bethel. This podcast is dedicated to providing leaders with solutions to build trust, inspire authentic transformation, and improve engagement. Learn about new and tested ways you can revitalize your culture, empower people, and transform your results. This is Yvette Bethel, and I am excited to welcome you to Evolve, Reinventing Leadership, Building Freedom Cultures. Evolve challenges traditional leadership paradigms and explores modern leadership models, providing ideas you can use to transform your culture. We focus on leadership through the lens of interconnectivity, flow, and balance, exploring ideas that translate into practical applications for contemporary organizational challenges. Our topic for this episode of Evolve is culture crossing. And to explore this topic with us is author, speaker, and founder of the global organization, Culture Crossing, Mr. Michael Landers. Over the past 15 years, Michael has designed and facilitated programs for global executives and managers to help them build essential skills in arenas such as cross-cultural communication, leadership, team building, sustaining employee engagement, diversity and inclusion, and international recruiting and staffing. He has conducted business in over 30 countries, including the creation of a cross-cultural consultancy in Japan, staffing global advertising conglomerates throughout Europe, and leading various successful business development initiatives in Latin America, among other international endeavors. Michael, welcome to Evolve. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you and to for yeah. your uh, vast experience. So uh, you have quite an interesting global background with Fortune 500, am I correct? Or Fortune 100 work? Yeah, yes. And I'm so curious about what got you started on this path to understanding and exploring culture. Yeah, it, it's it's been it's been a good journey so far. And and if I looked at it when I was younger and someone showed me this path and where I was, I would have been like, really? Wow, I would have been like, that's great. I would have been happy, but I would have been like, how do you get there? Right. Sometimes there are paths that we can just follow that that are set out for us, um, you know, from the system, if you will. If you want to be a lawyer in certain countries, you follow the path. But if you want to be a leadership consultant or work in cross-cultural, you know, consultancy, it's like, where's that path? So for me, it was interesting. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was three years old, my father got a job in Bogota, Colombia, in South America. And that kind of started our family on this path of crossing cultures. And as a young child, I would spend my year in Columbia and then come back to Massachusetts every summer. And I did that pretty much from the time I was three to the time I was 15. <clears throat> and then my father, my father got another job and we moved to Brazil. So we did that for two years. And then one more time, we moved to uh, Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean. And I spent my last year of high school there. So this whole experience really kind of formed, not knowing it at the time, but <clears throat> one kind of letting people know from those other places when I would return to, for example, from Columbia to Boston and have to explain my experience. And it was really challenging for some people because they had this perception of what 
um, life was supposed to be like from what they read, or they had no idea at all what life was like outside of their area. So I found myself growing up um, consistently training, if you will, educating, if you will, people about other cultures. And also my education was one of adaptation. How do I assimilate as quickly as possible into these new different arenas? Um, because I kept on having to move. And so those adaptation skills started to become honed just honestly for, for peace of mind and to be connected because I wanted to be included every time I was a new kid, but not just a new kid in a new school, a new kid in a new school in a new country. Mm. So that started the path. Interesting. You know, in one of your writings, you stated that culture shape perceptions, behaviors, uh, and impacting everything employees need and want to accomplish in their jobs. What caused you to come to this understanding? And why is this important? Yeah, so, so the, first of all, the, that word culture is, is to really look at it, it, it doesn't really exist. Right? We put a lot of labels on culture, but, but it's really human behavior. Right? We call it culture, mm -hmm. but it's just how people act. And, and I think what, what, came, what, what I came to at that point, and I'm not saying that's the only truth, right? That might have been what I knew at that time, right? which, is, mm -hmm. which is an interesting frame for me to say, how much of what you believe do you believe is, the, is, is finite, is set? Or how much of what you believe is what you believe because of what the information you have to that moment? Okay. For example, if I was like, I, and this, this happens every, every, every week, it feels like. For growing up, I was taught there were four laws of physics. Okay? But then I read recently, I think last year, that now they think there might be seven, eight, or nine, or 10. Right? I also grew up learning about all the different organs of the body. And then two years ago, they discovered a new organ. Oh, really? Right? Yeah, really. So, so, so when, when this, and this is, this is this kind of juxtaposition between when we look at intelligence is a lot of the work I, I kind of like to bring out um, comes from, from different types of intelligences, but you have your um, kind of programmed or fixed kind of crystallized IQ, mm. right? And, and when we look at that, it's like, it's your ability and to do everything that you do today, have conversations, negotiate, influence, manage, lead, sell, build relationships with all of the knowledge you've acquired to this moment. And that's been crystallized and programmed in you. And I think that culture is very much programmed into people. It's part of our crystallized intelligence. And there's some lovely aspects of it. I mean, I really love different cultures and behaviors, but sometimes we hold on to that crystallized intelligence and say, this is our tradition. This is our belief, which I respect. But sometimes it's not in service of growth. It's not in service of true connections. It's not in service of inclusion. And yes. on the other side, we have, the, we have this fluid intelligence, right? And that's your ability to do all those things I said with new novel approaches. So when I look at behaviors growing up, I would see in one country or one city or one group, just different things that people would do from how they would greet people to how Hi. much time they would spend eating to how they would actually eat to what they would eat. Right? right, and all of those, all of those came with beliefs like, oh no, you sit and you eat with a fork. Oh no, you don't eat with a fork. You eat with your right hand, but not your left hand. Only your right hand, and all of these rules around behaviors. But it's also how they perceived people, 
right? And, and we do the classic one, challenging your perception, which is if you're eating with somebody and they burp after a meal, what kind of reaction would that give, would that, would that have in you? Right now for some people, they'd be like, oh, disgusting, terrible, <laughs> horrible. How, how are they raised? You know, they're an yeah. animal, all these things, right? Just like really bad, especially in certain countries In other places, it might be like, oh, you enjoyed your meal. That's right. Right. So I love those situations where even in myself, when I have a strong reaction to something, right, I really look at it and go, that's, that's really pushing onto my programming of how I see things. Right. And it's okay to have those strong reactions, but I'm also like, understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Right. Are, are, are they valid? You know, are, are you understanding the whole situation? So I think that's where that kind of quote came from, which is culture ends up being these series of behaviors, beliefs, perceptions. And sometimes we hold on to it so strongly and it's a very strong part of us, which I love and traditions can be, but sometimes it can be a hindrance to our ability to really connect with other people from other quote unquote cultures. You know, you, this is such an exciting thing that you're bringing up because I totally believe uh, the same way that we've been programmed in a lot of ways and we don't question our programming. Um, from your perspective, uh, what can we do to deconstruct or to even, even before we deconstruct, what can we do to see the programming more clearly? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that, that's really kind of where a lot of, of the work that I, that I do is to get people to recognize their own programming. And by the way, I have to constantly recognize mine too. You know, just ask my mm -hmm. wife, she'll tell you every day, right? I'm having to recognize and, and my daughter as well. Like that people will, if you're open to it, people will challenge you to recognize your programming. And, and it's hard. People don't like to recognize their programming. Right. A lot of times they're like, no, that's just me. That's how I am. And sometimes that is. And, I, and I'm OK with that. But I would say, how, how do we do it? Well, the first one is, is trying to just look at those kind of situations. Right. We, we like to start and I like to start with, with people with, with like the burping. Right. Just something really simple. That's kind of innocuous, not harmful, kind of easy. And I don't judge people ever on their on the on the way they kind of respond to things. We just want them to see it. Right. So in some sense, we want to be able to hold up a mirror. So. The simple, a simple thing is, is to ask yourself a series of questions, right? Here, here's another one that comes to programming, which I like to do, which I think will be useful for, for your audience, which is when you ask somebody a question, whether it's a client, a colleague, right? A customer maybe. And after you ask them the question, it's met with silence. How many seconds of silence will you wait before you fill it, right? And that, just that little thing, think about it, think to yourself, and everyone has a number. Some people are like two, some people are five, some people are seven, some people are 30, literally 30 seconds away. But the answer to that question highlights your programming around how comfortable you are or how you were brought up or your personal preferences with silence. So a series of those kind of questions can really get someone to kind of look at themselves and go, huh, and then question it, to your point. All we want to do is question it. Like, I feel like you know, that right now in, in the world, um, North America and the United States in particular, we're really starting to question everything. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, do I need to work anymore? Right? Um, I mean, I don't want to do that job. I'm not going to tolerate this, you know? And it, it, it's scary when people are questioning everything. But on the other side, like, if we are questioning everything, that means we're, we might be like 
really looking at what makes sense, what is true for us, rather yeah. than just staying quote unquote program. Yeah, and I think so, it's happening all over the world. I, I think I uh, saw something in China where they're laying down or something, where people mm -hmm. are questioning the, the work ethic that's being um, touted as the right way to work, you know, the cutthroat and around the yeah. kind of thing. They're not into that. Yeah. So. No, they're, they're not. And, and another thing that they're doing, again, you, there, there might be ulterior motives, I don't really know, but the government is cracking down on the most successful businesses and saying, you need to pay money for more equity, basically. We're going to fine you. You're making too much money, and we need to make it more equitable, right? And mm -hmm. get people. So if that's a true thing, that's questioning that too, which is really interesting, right? I don't, I don't know if the way they do it there, it makes the most sense, but they're questioning. They are questioning. So... With regard to you, you speak to something. What did you call it? Culture, cult, grow your cultural IQ. And based on the conversation so far, it sounds like, uh, from your perspective, it makes sense to grow yourself first. <laughs> yeah. So, so exactly. So, so growing, growing your global IQ, right, um, is looking at that intersection between what is crystallized or fixed intelligence and what is fluid intelligence. And so the, the way I kind of define this global IQ, it's not so much as whether you know what the capital of, of Burkina Faso is in, uh, in uh, West Africa, okay? Or um, what language they might speak in um, Laos, right? For me, growing your global IQ is recognizing what's programmed in you to in turn, um, forward and increase your fluid intelligence, right? Your ability, your tolerance, what we just talked about, your tolerance for ambiguity, your tolerance and appreciation for seeing things more than one way. That's the global IQ, right? And that's kind of the workshops and seminars and you know the book, that's kind of what, what that is. And it's interesting because it translates, that model from my perspective translates to other, what we like to call core skills and soft skills, and which is a lot of work that you do, right? Um, and I'm sure it's very similar. It's like getting people to recognize um, how they build trust, right? Yeah. What's their method? And a lot of people right. don't have it. And right. then here's another method, right? So that's kind of yeah. what we do, but just starting with that foundation. Yeah, interesting. So I love this, uh, this what you call fluid intelligence. And so give an example of someone that's working within a multicultural global organization that's operating from a place of fluid and intelligence, what are they doing in, in terms of tolerance for ambiguity? What does that mean? Yeah, so, so if, someone's, if someone's kind of stepping into or leaning into or, or kind of opening up to their fluid intelligence, um, if they're working in a multicultural context or even a, even a monocultural context, right? Because this is the thing about crossing cultures, as, as, as you well know, right? Even if you take the same person from the same family, who grew up in the same hometown and believe me, I have two sisters. We have very different styles. And so mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of tension between people that are come from the quote unquote same culture. But how do, how do you step into, how do you kind of open yourself up to more fluid intelligence? Um, one example that I, that I like to look at and when I see people who have a higher fluid intelligence is they're very mindful of their intentions in given moments, mm -hmm. right? And for example, if they're intending, like, like I'm intending to, uh, be heard. I'm intending for people to respect me. 
I'm, I'm intending for people to be informed after I meet with them. And so they, they set themselves up with the intention and they very often share their intention, right? So they share their intention. So there's less chance that someone's going to misinterpret it. If you don't share your intention regularly because of all the different perceptions we have and opinions, most likely we will, and bias, we will, we will misinterpret people's intentions. So they do that. And then the other thing they say is, what type of impact am I seeking? How do I want people to respond to me, right? So, so if I'd say, if I'm looking and I'm working with somebody and I'm like, well, my intention is to be respectful. I want them to respond by recognizing me and, and then in turn, uh, understanding that I'm there uh, and to, to, to be respectful and then in turn, show me respect, right? So that might bite my intention and that might be the impact. So that's what they're seeking. If they're not getting the respect, this is what's interesting. If I'm intending to be respectful and I say I'm being respectful, but then you're disrespectful to me, then I will very often project onto you that, oh, it must be you, you know, because I'm intending to be respectful, even if I don't say it. Someone with higher fluid intelligence was, will look at themselves and go, huh, I wonder if how, I how, I'm, how I'm behaving respectfully, whatever I'm doing, might be seen as disrespectful to this person, right? And I'll give you a simple example. Maybe for me to be respectful, I, um, I listen really deeply. But that silence makes you, let's say, uncomfortable. And so even though I think I'm being very polite and giving you all this time to process, maybe you're very uncomfortable with that silence and feel like I'm interrogating you or, or putting you through a psychological test. Right? So that would be an example. Someone with high fluid intelligence would go, huh, I wonder if my silence might be causing this person to feel uncomfortable. Or I wonder if my interruptions are causing this person to feel disrespected. So that's kind of how, how, how we get people to kind of look at it. And, and one thing is just recognizing, hey, are you getting the responses from people that you're looking for? And very often when we cross cultures, sometimes we don't. People mm -hmm. don't give us the response we're looking for. And we tend to project it onto them versus looking at ourselves. So I have a follow-up question then. So you, if you're using fluid intelligence, but you're in an environment that's highly political, where sharing um, your intentions could work against you, people can take advantage of that. What do you suggest in situations like that in, in terms of uh, you know, using it? How should they use it if, if the space is not safe? Yeah. So obviously, if, if the space is not safe, we have to be mindful of what we share, because like to your point, people could use that against them later on. Right. So here's one that's an interesting thing. And again, I'm not saying I have these perfect solutions, but here's some things that I've seen work. Um, in certain spaces, I'll say where I'll just give an example that I see a lot where um, a man's behavior. If mirrored or kind of um, not mimic, but if mirrored by a woman, the exact same behavior can be interpreted very, very differently. A man can be seen as, and we know this as assertive, a woman might be seen as aggressive. Mm -hmm. And so if you're working in a space where either you're a minority, you know, in, in many different ways, it does not just race, it's not just gender, you might be a minority in, in seniority, in uh, education, you might be a minority in experience. Everyone else has 10 years at the company. You only have one, whatever it is. But what I like to do in those situations, because I grew up a minority, always moving to another country, always being the outsider, 
uh, living in Japan. I was in Japan after college. Again, one ten foreigners, one of ten foreigners in a town of 150,000 Japanese. So I grew up really being a minority in many different ways and at many different levels and facets. Even though here in the United States, I'm a double majority from appearance, right? A white guy. But I grew up very much a minority, and what that what that did, and, and while I'll bring it back to, to the group, if, if you're a minority working with in a multicultural context or monocultural context, is I became very aware of the majority's behaviors. I became very aware of how they communicated, of what they deemed respectful, of how they included people or excluded people. And honestly, from a child's perspective, a teenager's perspective, I looked at what was cool. Mm -hmm. Right now, to bring that forward to the company. And a lot of times if I'm a minority, in this case, if you're if a woman in, in the man's world, how are they defining assertiveness, right? How are they defining assertiveness? What behaviors are they respecting? Um, and I think sometimes that's, that's a little bit of an insight to say, hey, am I being perceived as aggressive even though I'm doing the same behaviors, right? Um, and again, I don't want anybody to change themselves, but it's looking at what impact you're after. So, how about you? How would you answer? I'm curious, how would you answer that question? Because I know you have a lot of uh, experience in that space. I was so tuned into you. I wasn't even thinking about that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the way that I approach trust is uh, similar to you, where you talked about the fluid intelligence being intrinsic. Uh, I, I talk about trust, uh, learning to trust yourself so that you can learn how to trust what's around you. So that self is the doorway mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so that you understand signals and things that are um, really prompting you to, or not prompting you to, to relate. And it's really mm -hmm. connection in the end. We're both talking about connection, which, which is... Yes. The, the, the thing, the biggest thing that fluidity is reliant on is connection. So if you're not connected yeah. with yourself, you can't do it. If you're not connected with the people around you, you can't do it. So connect with self first, and then you can connect uh, in your language with the fluidity of the situation, with the fluidity of the, the culture. Uh, and align to the, to the extent that your core values allow that. So- um, yes. That's key. I like that, that, that connection to the core value. So, so you're not being somebody that you're not. And then it brings up another big thing in, uh, in graduate school. Um, this is a big part of a, a several of our classes, which is, you know, the debate, the discussion between relativism and universalism. I don't want to get too academic on, on our call, but looking at whether you were, we were asked as students to say, are you more a cultural relativist? Or are you more a cultural universalist? Mm -hmm. And and the differences and and how, how how it was defined was if you're a relativist, the idea is that you can only understand your own culture, and you're not there to judge anybody else's. Okay, you're not there to judge anybody else's because that's not your culture. You can have an opinion on it, but that's the way that culture operates. And because you're not a member of that culture, you're not part of that culture. You don't, you don't have the say in and how or what that should do. On the other end of the spectrum, the universalist says there's, there's, there's specific behaviors that all humans should be treated in the same way, regardless of culture. 
right? And that debate goes on internally for us, as well as uh, externally and internationally, right? We see that in a lot of different things. And that speaks to what, to, for me, what you said about as long as it doesn't kind of mess with your core values, right? But there's, there's, there's a debate between that of, hey, this is the way we operate. And then from a company perspective, you see certain companies saying, hey, this is how we do it here, right? This is how we do it here. Um, and other people might push back, well, that's not fair because everybody should get that, right? Or, or no one should ever be treated that way. And so that debate between relativism and universalism goes beyond just the basic, what we call inalienable human rights, right? A universalist would say that, but also to the fact of what am I willing and what am I open to um, shifting and changing and what am I not? So core values is a huge thing. And that core values really is about the behaviors that we seek. Um, and I see companies miss on that a lot, Yvette. They spend time on their values, but they're great words. There's great promotion behind them. But at the end of the day, the behaviors that those words elicit um, are not being kind of mirrored or mm -hmm. demonstrated by people. Yeah, how I, how I tend to um, help people to see it is by describing two types of core values. One would be the espoused values and one would be the living values. Because they're always going to be core values that are alive. They just may not be aligned with the espoused ones. <laughs> and you need to- Nice, nice, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that, that, that difference, I'm sure, is, uh, you know, is really noticeable once you show it to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what? I'm, I'm getting so into this conversation. From, uh, from your perspective, what are the challenges that uh, leaders in multinational organizations, what are they going to face in the years to come? What's coming? Yeah, what's coming? I, so I think that, what, at least from my experience, what I'm seeing now is every organization at some level is going to be multicultural and even multinational. And I'm just talking about the flow of immigration, uh, populations changing, populations decreasing, even countries that you know um, historically have been very homogeneous, like a Japan. It's not going to be sustainable for Japan because of their population shortage. So there's already been a major influx of people, and, and Japan opening the door to people to easy, more easily get visas from other countries, and and if and it's much more multicultural than it was 10 years ago. 15, 20 years ago, for sure. Um, so I think one thing is that a leader is going to face a inherently normal kind of normal normalization towards more multiculturalism. I also think that tolerance for certain behaviors is not going to be um, high anymore, right? And any type or, of, of toxicity um, that's going to shift. And I think it's not a quick thing. It's not like, hey, let's give people a Friday off because they're burnt out. In some countries, that's kind of what we're seeing, right? It's deeper than that. Why do I want to go to work, right? In, in, in many countries, why do I want to go to work? Um, what does work stand for? You know, what is the reason why companies exist? Um, what are the other benefits other than the paycheck? And I think from a leader perspective, they have to start to really look at that because we talk about future of work. And it's not just what we're doing. In my mind, it's how we're doing it and why we're doing it. 
right? And I always, I always give the idea here, which just says, if, if you took money out of the equation, would you still be doing what you're doing? And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll shift the question a bit. If you took money out of the equation, what would you still be doing that you're still doing? And that question has always been interesting to me because it helps me gauge what I love, what I'm in service of, what is rewarding to me. And if I say if the answer to that question is if I took money out of the equation, I would not, I'm not talking about quitting your job. I'm, not, I'm saying I would not do anything, any, any aspect of my job that I'm doing now. I would do something completely differently. I would throw all that stuff away. Then that says, okay, well, what are you waiting for at some level? Exactly. Right. Because, yeah. and then I think that's what leaders have to look at to say, if we took money out of the equation, how many people would still want to be here? And that'll show you how, okay. And, and a lot of people say, oh, I wouldn't, well, what would make you? That would be my my kind of trajectory as a leader to say, how can I how can I reshape this culture? Not just of my company, but of what we stand for, what work could be like. Mm -hmm. Powerful. I think as a final question, what would be one piece of advice that you would give anyone in a multinational organization, whether they're a leader, whether they're frontline, client facing? What, what would that advice be? Yeah, so I would think that my little mantra that I go by, which is a little bit kind of, um, I'll use some American English vernacular here, a little cheesy, a little corny, okay, for some people. But it's, 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 it's really, it's, it's get curious, not furious, okay? Little Ryan yeah. thing. And, 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 and the core is getting curious, about when things challenge the way you, when you, that you, you know, the way you see things. When things are challenged in me, I really strive to be like, what an opportunity to look at it. And it's really hard because typically when someone challenges you or your way of thinking, or even when it's a deep ingrained thing, your thing is like, oh my God, how can you not? Right. And I'll give you a simple one. You ever meet somebody who doesn't like something that you love around food? And I'll just give like someone's like, oh, I, I hate mayonnaise. What? How can you not like mayonnaise? Or people go, Oh, I didn't like that movie. What? How could you not like that movie? Right? So yeah. those are, to me, those are opportunities. Like I have to really quiet my mind there because I might love the movie or love that food. And I have to say, <laughs> okay. Oh, interesting. So you didn't like that movie. Tell me more. What was it? Right. And that, that's the getting curious. Right. And furious isn't anger. It's just energy against what you, the way you see it. So I would say to anybody in working in those contexts, get curious about yourself right? Get curious about others. And when those opportunities present themselves, and they will, where people are challenging or, or disagreeing or have a very different way of doing things or opinion of something that you do, that's when I want to really get curious. Double click into those and say, tell me more. What, why, what, is, it, what is it that you see there? Because that's really that ability for you to start to question and grow your fluid intelligence. So simple, get curious, harder in practice, but the nice thing is there's always ample opportunity because people will not always agree with the way you see things. Now, I'm so pleased that you say, or that you suggest that people get curious about themselves first, because you need to understand yeah. why you're reacting or responding. In that 100%. First. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a quote by many gurus over the years, prophets as well. I always love it. And it's, um, the greatest gift you can give to humankind is your own self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Awful ending. I try to live. Yes, definitely. Yeah. You were going to say you try to live. 
no, I said, I, I try, so I try, I try to remember that. I try to, to always look at that and, and share that with people that, you know, when, as, as we become more self-aware, um, it's a really, it's a gift to others as well as to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that powerful quote, I'd like to thank you, Michael. <laughs> so, Pleasure. Such an in, interesting and engaging interview. Your insights into cross-cultural considerations will certainly help our audience to contribute to healthy cultures in the future. Please tell them how they can get in contact with you on the internet. Yeah, feel free. Um, my website is culturecrossing.net. If you Google or Yahoo search or any of the older searches, just culture crossing, you'll see it come up. Um, same thing on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to me, uh, Michael Landers, and my Twitter is at culture crossing. This has been Yvette Bethel and Michael Landers, and we thank you for taking the time to join us on Evolve Reinventing Leadership, Building Freedom Cultures. Thanks for listening to Evolve, Reinventing Leadership, Building Freedom Cultures. Join our vibrant network of leaders who are challenging the leadership paradigm in an innovative learning and impact network. Check out our webpage at ifbnetwork.co to learn more about and join our exciting ecosystem of high-performing leaders.